I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace your neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. Okay, first things first, the petition. We definitely still want to keep signing that and sharing that. At the time I'm recording today, we have over 15,600 signatures on the petition, but I think we can keep going. There's been a lot of media coverage recently about related issues such as suspensions and school exclusions. The Disability Royal Commission is a place that I would like to once again encourage people to tell their stories and tell, uh, talk about the experiences that they have had with these issues. I recently posted the press release that I had on the community group page um, of Square Peg Round Hole group and I noticed that the comments that were being shared are showing that there's a whole lot of information that is vitally important to share with the Disability Royal Commission. So I encourage everyone to please, if you are able to, please make sure that you tell the Royal Commission what has been happening to your child at school. Today's guest is Yen Perkis, somebody I've been wanting to interview for such a long time. And I finally got there. Yen is awesome. Yen is funny insightful, articulate and extremely intelligent and I absolutely loved talking to Yen. I kept a lot of my laughs in there which I usually edit out because I just kind of thought it just I couldn't keep editing them out. They had me laughing all the way through the interview so um, it was great. We talked about Yen's experience of life growing up, going to school, being identified autistic their experience with the mental illness that goes along with their neurodivergence. We talked about gender diversity and neurodiversity in those intersections. We talked about childhood behavioural interventions. We talked about the criminal justice system and this is somewhere I'd just like to place a quick trigger warning. Yen had an experience of being in prison and that discussion is really quite confronting so just take care when listening to that. But generally we talked about Yen's work as an advocate and an author and the stigma and misunderstanding around neurodiversity and embracing neurodivergent people. It was a really, really excellent episode with so much covered and I really hope you enjoy. And now let's talk to Yen. Welcome to the podcast, Yen Perkis. Hello there. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's so lovely to have you here. I've been waiting for this for a while. So thank you for being here with us today. Um, Yen, let's just get started, shall we? Because there's so many questions I wanted to ask you and talk to you about for so many reasons that will become apparent. And we'll start with the icebreaker questions, if that's okay. So Yen, what is your favourite animal? 
And why is that your favourite animal? Uh, I didn't even have to think. Cats, cats and more cats. I'm the biggest cat person in the world. Absolutely love them. I've loved cats since I knew they existed. And when I was a little kid, we went to a cattery and I just went, yeah, I want one of these. And I've always had a strong affinity with the felines. (laughs) so actually pet cats not I had a couple of people come on in a row that said they loved lions I do love well particularly leopards actually I think they're beautiful and jaguars the spotty ones I like the spotty ones and they're very majestic and beautiful but you can't really cuddle them you know if it slept on your bed it'd take up most of the bed and if it got annoyed with you you'd lose half your face, whereas if you, your pet cat gets annoyed with you, they might nibble on your toes or something like that. Yeah, so exactly. In practical terms, I prefer domestic cats, but, yes, I have a strong admiration for their bigger cousins. Very good. Right, okay, so cats, that's interesting. Well, thank you very much. Um, now let's talk a little bit more about you. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself, Yen, your life growing up and how you found yourself doing what you're doing with your life today? And then if you could also include what is your relationship to the square peg trying to fit in the round hole? Okay, I'll try and remember all those things and answer them. My life growing up was quite good but challenging. So I was undiagnosed until I was 20. Um, when I was at school, there was no idea of autism. That wasn't a thing that people talked about. ADHD, that didn't exist as far as people knew, that kind of thing. And for me, um, that meant that I got bullied quite a lot, that I had issues at school. I was very academic. I didn't have any issues with studying. I would get straight A's. I have a master's degree and I've never studied for an exam in my life. I'm that kind of annoying. Um, Yeah, the information would be in my brain and then I would download it onto the exam paper, easy as anything. I was always very creative, so writing. I used to write poetry when I was seven, Um, writing and art and music. I played the piano really beautifully when I was younger. Um, You know, when I was diagnosed, it was in 1994, and the, the diagnostician said, um, oh, because you're autistic, you won't have any creative skills. And I'm like, but I'm doing a Bachelor of Fine Art. I was quite, there was a lot of ignorance in the world at that point. Um, my early adult years were very challenging. Uh, ended up in prison when I was 20. It's a whole, whole story there. I do have a book that talks all about it called Finding a Different Kind of Normal. Um, and, yeah, so I, I kind of threw my life down the toilet and then when I was 25, I decided I wanted to make some changes. So one of the things I wanted, and I think this is so funny because it sounds dreadful, but it was actually a really good thing. I wanted to be ordinary. To my mind, being ordinary meant to have a professional job, a mortgage, a suit and an education. And I figured if I was ordinary, then my life would be better. And so I set about on this campaign to become ordinary. And the first thing I did was enrol in university, which was lovely. I, I studied fine art, so it was really nice. And so I did that, and that gave me confidence. And work was really challenging. I knew that I, if I wanted that life, I'd have to have like a well-paid job. But anxiety was a big problem for me around in employment, um, and I got very worried. I had a job when I was 26, and I was washing dishes in a restaurant, which is not a difficult job. Um, but I was so anxious, I was such a perfectionist 
that I got really, really, really stressed. And I actually, in addition to my autism and ADHD, I also have schizophrenia. So high anxiety can trigger off psychosis for me. Mm. So this is what happened with that job. I was such a perfectionist. I was so anxious. I figured if I made a mistake, the business had closed down and all my colleagues would be out of a job and it would be my fault. And so the anxiety around that led to a psychotic episode and to me thinking something. And that something was, I can't work now, but one day I will be able to. And the lovely thing about me and my life is that motivation and determination. If I want something, that something will happen. When I was nine years old, my dad had this friend who was a business consultant and he was a very wealthy man and a very good judge of character. And he said to me, Yen, you will get whatever you aim to get in life. And he was absolutely right. So when I wanted negative things in my life, that's exactly what I got. When I started wanting positive things, I started getting positive things. And I built on those. And I built and built and built incrementally. And so around employment, I kept putting in challenges that were more difficult in the employment space to build my strength, to build my resilience. Then in 2004, I met somebody called Polly Samuel, who was an amazing autistic author and advocate. And Polly became my mentor. And Polly said to me, Yen, you need to write your life story. And I said, no, I'm not writing my life story. That opens me up to a whole bunch of misery. And she said, well, when I go and give talks for parents, there's always a couple up the back. And they leave before the end. They don't stay for the questions. They don't stay for the cup of tea and a biscuit. They leave out the door before they have to talk to anyone. And those are the parents of the kids who are involved in the criminal justice system. And she said, if you wrote your life story again, those are the parents it would be for. Well, it didn't take me more than half a second to realise that was my parents. And so I wrote the book. And the book was the final, that was the final thing. So it was about six years after I was released from prison that I wrote the book. And Was that your first book? Yes. You're right. And at that six years, things could have gone one way or the other. You know, I do remember doing drugs with someone once and obviously for me doing drugs is a very bad idea because I have schizophrenia and those drugs impact on psychosis. So I had all these things going on that meant I could have gone one way or the other. But when the book came out, that changed my life and that, I would say, the catalyst for what I do now is that book. That book utterly changed my life. It was a beautiful thing. And it is my, of all my books, I have 11 of them now. I will have 13 soon and 16 a little bit after that. But this book is always going to be my favourite because it's actually changed my life. And when people say to me, oh, I read your book and it changed my life, I say, well, thank you, it did mine too, for probably different reasons. But, but yeah, now, I mean, I guess most people watching this probably come across me and my work somewhere in their travels, there is a lot of Yensky in the world. Yeah, there and, is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. I love making a difference. I love doing good things in the world, given where I've come from as well, that I had such a difficult past and was so broken and, and negative and sought out bad things for myself. And now I'm pretty much entirely positive and it's lovely. It's a great privilege. And I work now, I work in government administration, Um I'm a middle manager. I'm managing staff now. I've got two staff members, which is lovely. They're lovely staff members too. And, um, yeah, so that's Amazing. 
And yeah. you asked about the square peg in the round hole as well. So I did and I was just about to ask you, but you remembered, I, see? I <laughs> so I guess for me, when I look at the world and I look at me, I don't really fit at all. I'm not in any sense of the word neurotypical. I don't understand what it's like to be neurotypical. I spent most of my younger years thinking neurotypical people were brainwashed. I thought mm. they were, especially cisgender neurotypical women, I figured they were all <laughs> brainwashed because why would you wear heels and makeup if you actually had a choice in the matter? Why would anyone choose to do that? Heels are painful and you fall over, you fall flat on your face. Why would anyone want that? So I guess for me, okay. the world's not a good fit. But I manage pretty well. You know what? I am an unashamedly autistic person. I'm out loud and proud about all of my differences, my autism, my ADHD, my schizophrenia, my generalised anxiety, the fact I'm asexual, the fact I'm non-binary, all of these differences. I'm very proud of them and I don't have it in so many ways, but it doesn't really matter because I, I engage in the world very differently to most people and people think, oh, they're a bit weird, but I'm actually really nice and I think I do think that nice is a strategy. Nice is yeah. definitely a strategy because if I was not nice, then people would think, oh, that person's really weird. Whereas because I am nice, they think, oh, that person's really quirky and endearing, mostly. I, I should say there are people who hate me with passion. But, you know, what can you do? What's wrong with those people? I, 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 that, gosh, you just said so much already that I'm processing it still. From what I can see, you're funny for a start. And the thing I am learning um, over my life, I mean, I may fall into that category of the the woman walking around with the high heels. Why would you do that? But as age progresses, I don't do it as much anymore. (laughs) I can tell you it's, it's not, it it goes away, but that's part of life, isn't it? As things change, as you develop and change, things change about how you see things and I think these days, and all of this has been my experience as just being a parent, I guess, is I actually am drawn towards weird these days. I love weird. Weird is interesting. And I can see why your whole life you were looking at the kind of neurotypical thing and thinking, you know, oh, because <laughs> I feel like that now too. You know, I feel an affinity to it. It's, it's um, I enjoy it. I, I often say to people on this spectrum, I say the coolest adults were not popular in school. Right. That's the theory that I have is that when you meet adults who are really cool, really self-aware, engaging, they were often people that were unpopular in school. And I think as we age, then we become less, I don't know, less, um, embarrassed um, and ashamed yeah. and disgusted. Embarrassment, shame and disgust are pretty strong in a lot of teenagers particularly and I think it's as you get older those instincts diminish and you actually see the value of people that maybe when you were younger you wouldn't have done. A hundred percent. You are so, you nail on the head. I think that absolutely captures it, yeah. It's real, it's true, you're right. Yeah. Well, thank you for describing all of that. We're going to unpack so many things you just very briefly mentioned. My next question for you is about 
the importance of learning from and talking to neurodivergent people. So my question is, what is the most important thing that you want other people like me to know about you and how you experience life? We've just touched on it then, but is there any more that you would like to sort of say about that? I just wrote a blog post today and it was collaboration with a friend and it was all about communication and the assumptions that people make of autistic people about our communication. And this friend of mine had an issue with a misinterpretation of a communication that they'd made and they were being quite direct and honest and the person didn't like this and thought it was rudeness. And those assumptions that autistic people are being rude uh, we're being disrespectful, we're being thoughtless, being unkind. All of these things are often completely wrong. And it is just that. There are different communication styles between autistic and neurotypical. And autistic people know this. We know, even if we don't have language for what it is, we know instinctively that other people communicate differently to us. But the thing about neurotypical folks is that they're the majority. They're the dominant. And so they probably have no reason to realise that um, that we're communicating differently and they just assume. And those assumptions around communication are really difficult and they can cause a lot of trouble for autistic people and a lot of assumptions on intent that just simply isn't there. Basically, the autistic communication style is direct, honest, one level. We're not, you're not you're looking for hidden meaning where there is no hidden meaning. Whereas the neurotypical communication is more multi-level and a lot of things are about unwritten rules and expectations. Autistic people have no idea about that, um, really. So, um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I know what you're saying and, uh, you know, I guess that draws me as well to my autistic friends in that way. I, You know, I never have to worry about hidden meanings and funny kind of things going on behind the scenes. It's very direct and I really enjoy that too, yeah. I remember a man just saying to me once who had a conversation with the team and the manager said, oh, again, nice eye contact. He said, oh, what? No, because I As was, an adult, someone said that to you no, in, in was, a work? He was, he was just, it, it was a conversation and I responded and the look on my face was what I actually thought. This manager thought I was being very sophisticated and nuanced. I'm not being sophisticated and nuanced. This is actually my honest communication. I don't know how to make my face look one thing or another. I can just about <laughs> manage to smile on cue. I can just about do that. That is it. If you said to right. me, look frightened, I would not be able to know how to look frightened. So this manager was assuming I was neurotypical and that what I was doing was a very nuanced piece of communication. Oh, but I was oh. just demonstrating what was going on on my face with what I actually thought. I thought oh. that was fantastic. It was actually is- a very nice manager. He wasn't being difficult. He, he genuinely thought I was, I was a nuanced communicator, which I'm not. Oh, right. <laughs> It's what's going on in here. Um, Sometimes it just hurts my brain trying to work out what's going on with other people. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, all I get is the words. That's all I get. But I'm very I'm frighteningly intelligent, so I can actually um, ascertain what's going on quite well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I absolutely can see that and know that about you. Yes, of course. And so now let's talk about something else. Yen, there's so many topics that I want to talk to you about, but this one relates to early life and behavioural interventions, which is something that is particularly of interest to the people who would be listening to us today and the community that that I have started with the square peg round hole uh, because it's a lot of parents and a lot of us get thrust into you know a basically a a series of intensive ABA when our kids are diagnosed and when we start out you know in this whole world so I'd just love to know what your thoughts are on this pattern of what is happening with young families and their young autistic neurodivergent kids who um, get thrust into these intensive therapy sessions of ABA and, you know, all of that medical model related stuff. I really struggle with ABA, I think, for a number of reasons. I think the basis of it is that autistic is bad, neurotypical is good. So you have to force coerce children into being less autistic and if they get it wrong you punish them get it wrong so if they stim no don't stim normal people don't stim if they don't make eye contact no you have to make eye contact it's basically if you look at autism as a culture and neurotypical experience as a culture it's like one of them's invading the other one and saying no we don't like your customs we don't like you speaking your language um, we're going to force you not to these therapies I have seen reports around them causing actual trauma to children and kids who've gone through this therapy it's not therapeutic but yes that have gone through this is coming out of post-traumatic stress now the problem is the parents are told especially in some other countries the parents are told this is what you do this is the best start for your autistic child and if they don't know any different they often go along with it. It's what they've been told. A lot of clinicians will say, you need to do this therapy. Good thing, it's very expensive. You know, it's actually extremely expensive. So parents are spending a lot of money on something that's actually damaging. Um, it, and, and, yeah, the ethos of it is wrong to my mind. I don't think it's right to tell autistic children to not be themselves because if you're stimming you're not hurting anybody you're just stimming and we need the world to understand autistic experience rather than squashing autistic children into some kind of neurotypical model um i i don't think it's okay and i i think um and one of the issues is i find as an autistic advocate who isn't a parent i often have parents that are on board saying oh we love what you have to say again blah 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 but I also get that group of parents who say, well, what would you know about this? And um, Because you're not a parent, yeah. you think that's what, yeah. And you don't speak for my child. And I'm like, no, of course I don't speak for your child. I don't speak for anybody's child. I speak for myself. And if it resonates, then that's really useful. But I do find that everybody's on a journey with this stuff. Now, I've mm. been on this journey for, when was 1994? Nearly 30 years, 28 I've been on this journey, I guess 48 years because, you know, um, I've been autistic my whole life as well. But we are all on a journey to our understanding and knowledge and insight in this space. And some parents that I talk to are also quite a long way along their journey. 
but some parents are not. And you have to recognise that. As an advocate, I don't want to be shutting people down because they'll say, oh, well, you know, I won't talk to one of those advocates again. They don't listen to me or they're, they're not helpful. So I am aware that I have a responsibility as an advocate to actually support people along their journey and I don't want to lose them because if I lose them, then all the other autistic advocates have probably lost them as well. So, um, but And then there's some people who you're never going to convince of anything um, and that's, I mean, I find that in the gender diversity space a lot as well. If someone's a bigot, you're not going to convince them not to be a bigot. It's the cyclical way side of it sort of thing. It's the way it keeps going around in a cycle Mm -hmm. and I just hope that we're slowly um, breaking that cycle, I guess, over time or just peeling bits off it so that it's not as strong as what it was maybe 20 years ago, like you say. I have a friend who put her child through ABA and then realised how dreadful it was And she's now a really outspoken ally and quite lovely human being. Um, And, yeah, so. That, that I guess, gives you a little bit like I know I I have the same sort of feeling and I have the same feeling about myself because I didn't, I was also, had no clue years ago. And what about the intersection of autism with other mental health conditions and other neurodivergences such as ADHD and dyslexia, can you talk about, and you've hinted already about um, your experiences with these, these intersections of mental health conditions? Tell us about it. So it's extremely common. Um, probably most autistic people, certainly most of the autistic people I know, have other comorbidities. I don't comorbid, it's a dreadful word really, but co-occurring conditions. Uh, particularly other neurodivergences. So the neurodivergences, some people say mental illness is a neurodivergence. It isn't. Mental health is psychological and psychiatric, as in thinking and brain chemistry. Neurodivergences are neurology, which is how your brain's wired. It's a different process to mental health. So I would never say that something like depression or schizophrenia is a neurodivergence. The neurodivergences include things like ADHD, ADD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, um, Tourette's, um, like that. And so lots of autistic people have one or more of those conditions and also mental health conditions, uh, usually depression, anxiety, things like that, but sometimes schizophrenia and psychosis, uh, bipolar, lots of post-traumatic stress, sadly, because so many of us get treated very poorly, especially in childhood and early adult years. Um, which is is dreadful. I saw research recently that over 80% of autistic school kids have been bullied. That's not okay. That's so it's not. not. And it it's just unbelievable that we live with those those figures, and it, nothing seems to happen about it, yes. other than people like us shouting. You know, it's it's unacceptable. When I was at school, the teachers used to say, "Oh, just keep away from them." And I'm thinking, it's a schoolyard, not a country. You know, this, they will find me. I'm not hard to find. I'm big and tall. I've got blue hair. Not that I had blue hair when I was at school. But yeah, your hair looks a bit purple to me, but that's a bit of both. <laughs> it's looking good. You've had it recently done, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I used to worry at the hairdressers that I wouldn't know what to say, but now I just talk about my books. <laughs> oh, good on you. <laughs> 
so anyway, men, mental health. Um, so mm. one of the issues you have as an autistic person with mental health issues is that your autism looks different to somebody who's autistic that doesn't have mental illness and your mental illness looks different. So um, it can be quite difficult to get an appropriate and accurate diagnosis of mental health issues and or autism. You often get people misdiagnosed with mental illness conditions that they don't actually have. Most common, you probably know, borderline personality disorder. There's a reason for this. It's not just that clinicians don't know what they're doing, although there is an element that of that sometimes. But borderline looks quite similar to autism, but they're quite different. Um, I talk about this a lot because I was misdiagnosed with borderline after I've been diagnosed with autism, actually. And it was a matter of having a psychiatrist at the time who did not know what he was doing. Um, and was a bit misogynistic and thought that all the women and the assigned female at birth people in his hospital must have uh, borderline because it was histrionic women's syndrome. So, yeah, I copped that and had that for a few years and it was not very helpful um, and not accurate. I ended up doing a course, a dialectical behaviour therapy course, um, which was a residential six-month program and I got there and within two days I thought, gee, all these other people here are very like each other and not very like me. And I worked out that, yeah, probably misdiagnosed. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's that. Well, I didn't know that actually about um, the personality disorder diagnosis. Um, I had heard a lot about bipolar being yeah, misdiagnosed quite common as a misdiagnosis for autistic men um often get the schizophrenia misdiagnosed and then of course you get someone like me who actually does have schizophrenia and is autistic so it's taken me 27 years to accept my schizophrenia diagnosis i was up at a, a residential program last year um here in canberra and i love the manager there manon she's brilliant and I said, hey, Manon, I'm schizophrenic. And she was like, what, you finally worked it out? <laughs> <laughs> what, I, were you just I, testing I, out saying it or something? <laughs> no, I just, oh, uh, it was unwell. I don't think people realise that. I think they, they think it must be not that bad because I do yeah. so well and I do so much work. And you do. My you illness do. is a nasty, nasty thing. My autism as a friend, my ADHD, friend, anxiety, not a friend, schizophrenia, mortal enemy. Um, yeah, not, not a fan. I worked a few years ago, oh, a lot of long time ago, I worked um, in the pharmaceutical industry on a medication that um, was for schizophrenia, treated schizophrenia and psychosis and different things like that and um learned a bit about it read some books and things like that just you know and I know it's yeah it's and I just find all psychiatry extremely difficult and complex and things overlap with each other and get misdiagnosed it's really hard as well so it's an observation made by a doctor um yeah Mm. and it's subject to their biases and Mm. their feelings and their experiences I have had probably over 50 psychiatrists in my life. Oh, and my goodness. Who go, well, I've been in hospital dozens of times, and so you see a different one every time you go there. But, yeah, apart from the one that misdiagnosed me, 
every single other one has said autism schizophrenia. So, oh, okay. Well, that's a pretty good track record. Yeah. Yeah. Such a large number of them. It makes me think they're um, right. Yeah. 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 Like a quantitative um, test in itself. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for explaining that. Um, I'm just going to talk to you now about um, understanding and acceptance that is emerging in regards to the intersection of gender diversity and neurodiversity. So this is something that impacts your life as well, isn't it? Can you tell us a bit more about that, please? So I'm non-binary gender, um, which means I don't identify as male or female. Um, And within that, so non-binary is like the umbrella term and then there's a number of identities sitting beneath that so the one that I have is agender which basically means when I think about my identity in terms of gender I don't actually align to anything I don't feel like it. it's the same I'll give an example I moved from England to Australia when I was 11 and apparently if you move overseas at around that age you lose your sense of national identity and I have no sense of that. I don't care if Australia wins the cricket. I really don't. I don't. I don't care who wins the cricket. It's not important to me. I don't. I don't have a strong national affinity. I like living in Australia. It's a really nice country in a lot of ways. But I don't have that strong emotional connection to either Australia or England or any other country. So that's how I feel about my gender. My. I don't have any affinity with male or female. Um, I don't have a gender and that's a a lovely thing and I came out in 2018 I came out on Facebook that was my first um, I thought that was fantastic I I didn't think about it at the time but a bit later I thought oh yeah you're hilarious so I came up with my new name in um 2019 and I officially legally changed my name to Yen in May 2019, so I've been Yen for three years now. Um, so it's very common for autistic people to be trans and gender divergent. I um, I um, identify as transgender because I transitioned from assigned female at birth to non-binary, so my feeling is that I'm a transgender person. Um, some people don't think that. Some non-binary people just say, oh, no, I'm non-binary. Um, and, you know, identities very much belong to the person whose identity it is. It's very common for autistic people to be trans and gender divergent. There's a US study that says that we're 7.5 times more likely than the rest of the population to be trans and gender divergent. So that's quite wow. a significant percentage. And is that um, different for people assigned female at birth to people assigned male at birth? I'm not sure, but anecdotally mm. and in my personal experience, I meet a lot of people assigned female at birth who are non-binary um, yeah. and autistic. I go to a transgender meetup, which is just lovely. I really enjoy it. Um, we have that every month, so I go along oh, cool. That. And it's a lot of uh, what the person who runs it, who isn't neurodivergent, but um, they said, um, put up your hands who identifies as being neurodivergent. And like about 90% of the people put their hands up. So, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. A lot of us. Yeah. Oh, that's what I've observed. And I had heard that before too. But 
I really must get to the, like, I must find out what the research is to, to understand that a bit more. It's absolutely fascinating. I heard there was something about the brain cha- um, structural differences or something like that. I'm not I, sure. I there's, there's a concept yeah. of um, autogender, which is obviously that intersection between gender and autism, um, which is something people have been talking about as well. I talk about this a lot. I talk about gender and autism a lot, especially to parents. It's one of my my most frequently requested talks at the moment is gender diversity and autism for parents. So, I bet that would be very helpful to a lot of people. I never I know anything about anything, but apparently I do. Well, I think you, yes, I I know you do. <laughs> you absolutely do. And I, I bet a lot of people, especially people in the older generations or the older parents uh, who are grappling with this as a new thing to a lot of us, um, would get a lot of comfort and understanding from hearing from you. Well, the Absolutely. one thing I say to all parents is if you have any prejudice or bias, park it, put it on hold, don't, because the best thing that happens if you respond badly to your child coming out is that you'll lose their trust. The worst thing is that you'll lose them. So this is very important stuff. Um, and if you do have any prejudices or biases, just don't. It's not about you. And what I would recommend if, you, if parents are concerned and they don't really know much about it, do some reading. There's a lot of good stuff in this space. Neurodivergent Rebel does a load of good things. They are fantastic. Um, there's Max Lord Sparrow doing some good work. There's Wen Lawson. There's me. Um, there's Onakage. Um, who else is there? Oh, look, oh there's um, the Gender Fairy, um, which is Joe Hurst. There's some really, really good people doing work in this space. Um, and just yeah, those things out. Yeah, I'll list all of that in my, when I do the show notes and that for this so that people can access that because it's definitely something that a lot of people ask about and want to know more about. So, Oh, and I have a book. I have a book which is for autistic teens that are transgender. It is oh, wonderful. Awesome Autistic Guide for Trans Teens. It came out two weeks ago and um, it's written with my co-author, one of my many co-authors, the wonderful Sam Rose, who's an awesome autistic transgender person. Yeah, so check that one out. It's not not in Australia just yet. It should be here in the next couple of months. Oh, that sounds awesome. That I will definitely get that myself. But um, yeah, I'll I'll list that as well. Thank you. Wow, you do see what I mean? You do so much. It's unbelievable. Um, what's my next question? Ah, oh, this is this is I've been. I have had people asking me to talk to talk to somebody who knows about the criminal justice system. Uh, yes, um, so um, again, another intersection. But um, yeah, can you just talk? Can you just talk about it, please? Can you just talk about prison? Can you talk about being neurodivergent in prison? Well, the thing about me when I was in prison is I learned how to mask very, very, very quickly. Okay, I realised yeah. I didn't know how to mask. Uh, my time there would become very, very unpleasant very quickly. So I basically lost any sense of my identity. I lost myself. I became the person fitting in with the other people. 
There were some other people there that I would say were definitely neurodivergent or autistic, um, one person in particular, um, and they did not get along so well as me. I have this thing, so when I was a teenager, I was sexually abused and it was horrible and I remember thinking I don't want that to happen again and it didn't. It came close, but it didn't. And when I went to prison, I thought, I don't want to be the victim in here. I don't want to be attacked by all the other girls. And I wasn't. It's that whole thing of me, what I want. Oh, you were saying that before. Yeah, sorry. So I wanted those things not to happen, so they didn't. But it came at a cost, came at a big cost, because I lost any sense of who I was. The thing about being in prison is you're constantly at risk. Everyone in there is constantly at risk. You could get killed. Life is very cheap in that place and it's very easy to get killed um, either by yourself or by somebody else. I remember one month we lost seven people. Seven people in one month. And I was very unwell with psychosis and depression and um, this meant that life was very, very difficult for me. I was very self-destructive. In fact, when I was in the locked ward, not prison, hospital, in 2019 in Canberra, I was transported back to prison. And for the first time in 20 years, I was doing self-harm. And I hadn't done self-harm since I'd been in prison. And it was being in the locked ward, it put me back in that space. Right. Mm. Um, it was really hellish. It was a very nasty place. I know... You know, someone once said to me, I, put, I wrote a blog or I did something and I put my criminal record reference number in there. And it's the same numbers, not in the same arrangement, but it's the same numbers as Jean Valjean's number in um, Les Mis. And someone said, oh, I just like Jean Valjean in Les Mis. And I'm like, no, not like that. There is no... Um, there is no romance in what happened to me there is no romance there is no intrigue there's nothing um romantic about it was a dreadful dreadful time and i was in a bad place and i'm lucky to still be here um so yeah bit of a trigger warning on that one there but um how long were you do you mind me asking how long you were three and a half years on three and a half so I went there for six months. I had a boyfriend. I don't normally do boyfriends, but I had a boyfriend who was a horrible, scary criminal. And I didn't work out how horrible and scary he was until I'd got in trouble with him. And so I ended up going there for six months. And then I was released and I got I self-medicated with drugs in a big way. I was, you know, my passionate interest was drugs, um, which was not good. And so I... Um, I got quite unwell because of the drug use and I was homeless and things like that. I ended up after some time, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia around that time and then I moved home with my parents for a year and they were building this whole little chalet for me out the back and it was really nice. And But I was conflicted. I was in two worlds and I was still smoking lots of weed, not that my parents knew. And then I got really unwell with psychosis and I went to one hospital and they said, you have psychotic depression and they gave me medication. And then I went home 
And then I ended up, like a week later, I ended up in the other hospital in the area and that's where that psychiatrist with the misdiagnosis was. And I was really depressed but I was also really psychotic and I thought I was delusional and I thought that when I was in prison a couple of years previously, I'd been really happy because all the older women mothered me and took took me under their wing. And I thought, oh, if I went to prison, I wouldn't be depressed. And so I kept committing crimes. And in the end, I went to the magistrate. And apparently, I only found out this really recently, but my parents said the magistrate asked them and the psychiatrist to come and see him. And he said to the psychiatrist, you do realise if you discharge this person, you're discharging them to um, homelessness or prison. And apparently my parents said, he said yes. And so that's what happened. What, the doctor said that? So, yeah, the doctor is now dead. He passed away and I don't want to speak ill of the dead but I'm glad he's gone so he can't hurt anybody else. Yeah. Far out. That's yes. that's a So I spent the next three years after that in and out of jail. I became very institutionalised. I became quite obsessed with the structure and the rules in prison. There's lots of rules. You've got rules from the officers. You've got rules from the prisoners. Lots of rules. And I was very frightened by the outside world. It was very unpredictable. So, yeah, that was that was me for the next three years. And then... I went to a service called Spectrum, not the Autism Spectrum. That was the program I told you about for people with borderline personality disorder. And that oh. was what I needed. It was really helpful. Um, the okay. staff there actually had faith in me. Nobody had had faith in me for a very, very long time. Um, it was structured. It was like going to school, which was really nice. And, um, yeah, so that, that was how I got to be in the world that I'm in now. Um after you know, I had to work hard, but yeah, I'm not a. I bet you did. Yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I bet you did have to work hard because that doesn't sound like it's all that long ago. And look where you are now, or how you at least appear, and and what you're saying is that you're in a very good place now, which is wonderful. And I hope I hope that that continues, obviously. But yeah, it wasn't that long ago, was it? It was 23 years ago. Oh, I thought you said 2019. Sorry, I got that wrong. No, 2019 when I was in the locked ward in hospital. Oh, which brought it back to you from before. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, okay. No, I was released in February 2000, so we're talking nearly 23 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and a very tough time in your life. And I was very interested to hear you talking about the structural side of things. So the questions I've had from parents who have asked me to talk to somebody about this is they're concerned about their sort of youth, I guess their kids, their people um, coming out of sort of school age and going into the big world and, you know, just the natural things that happen to people with disabilities where they can, especially if they've had an awful experience, like we just said, 80% of autistic students are bullied. I mean, it's a pretty tough time for young people, isn't it, neurodivergent people? And they can get into this situation where they may find themselves arrested or something. Um, Yeah. By criminals as well. um, Yes. End up taking the fall for somebody else's poor behaviour um, or just doing the wrong thing and not realising they're doing the wrong thing. I heard a story from England about this autistic guy 
who was on the bus and there was a girl in front of him and she had these really shiny metallic stockings on and he thought, oh, what a nice stem and went and stroked her leg and she thought it understandably thought he was a horrible pervert and he had to go to court. I think, I think he got off, like I think it was okay, but you can sort of understand both perspectives there. And I don't think I'd be too happy if I was sitting on the bus and someone started feeling me up. Um, but in that situation, the intent wasn't there. And I think it's really important to know about the intent. With oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. But you can say this about what's happening in schools as well. The behaviour of neurodivergent kids, um, if you put a neurotypical lens over that, looks like it's intended to be... Um, bad behaviour when it may be completely innocent and it may be part of their stimming or whatever it might be. Um, And, yeah, I think that, um, sorry, what you were saying there about falling into the wrong crowd and and finding yourself in this cycle is what, what parents are really wanting to hear about. So can you tell us about what it was like in terms of the understanding of the people who were, and I'm putting inverted commas up, caring for you or looking after you? Is did you did you notice that it's the same problems as what we have in schools where teachers are not equipped to understand neurodivergence and what's needed in the prison system or was it a completely different? Uh, no. Prisons like high school if the bullies would kill you, basically. So yeah, it's the same yeah. situation. It's the same right. dynamic. There's a guy called Michel Foucault who is a French philosopher and he wrote a book called Discipline and Punish. And it was all about the idea of structures of discipline in society. So he talked about the prison, the school, the hospital and the army of all right. being the same organisation but with a different sort of flavour. Um, and the book is all about prison. It's a really interesting book. Check it out if you'd like to. I wrote an essay about it for uni and I got 94%. So Whoa. Going in. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was a lovely essay. I talked mostly about the book and then I talked about Jean Genet, who was a, um, an author, French author, who was a, a criminal um, in the 1950s and 60s. And then I wrote about somebody's daughter, Theatre, who I worked with as prison. A really nice little essay. I was very proud of it. So, oh, well done. Thank you. But anyway, yeah, I got my master's <laughs> degree just over there and I'm like, yay, master's degree. Um, well done. That's so good. But, yeah, no, um, school and prison do share a number of things. I think when I was in prison nobody knew about autism anyway. I think it is better now. This is so long ago for me and it's not yes, true. the place I've yeah. stayed in. I don't do a lot of criminal justice system things. I do occasionally, but, um, yeah. Mm, okay, yeah, fair enough. It was a fair while ago, but that book sounds very interesting and I think it's something that would be good for us to try and better understand is these commonalities across the different kind of institutional settings, if we want to call them that. Yeah, it's there's definitely something there that's going to affect our community. So um, just getting towards the end now, but I just wanted to ask you, um, because of these and other intersections that we've been talking about, there is so much stigma and misunderstanding. In your view, how do we as a society learn to embrace this diversity across settings such as these different 
groups we were just talking about, school, employment and just general society. What do you think is the progress there and what what's going to happen, do you think? It's a lot better than it was. So when I started out as an advocate, parents were the enemy, absolutely. Every conversation I had with a parent was like I had to defend myself as an autistic person um, and you know, you know, you don't have any expertise or authority to speak on behalf of my child, that kind of thing. That was the not the exception, that was the norm. Now, it is the exception, or it is for me. Um, I know that probably most people who want to give me a hard time would avoid doing so because I've got a profile, so people might attack them and stuff like that. So I might not have a very realistic view of people's attitudes given my position, um, but as far as I see it, things have really improved. Um, but there is still a long way to go. And I always say with advocacy and activism and all of those things, um, we can't be complacent. We can't think, oh, yes, it's all fine, we'll just let it keep going and it'll go on this lovely, neat trajectory and everything will be beautiful and things will get better and better and better. It doesn't work like that. Uh, we need to be vigilant. Uh, we need to keep up the good work. Um, one of the lovely things is the proliferation of autistic advocates. Just lovely. There are so many of us now. When I started out in Australia, there were, what, about five people doing the kind of work that I do. And now I wouldn't, I wouldn't even begin to estimate how many, but it's a lot, and I think that's lovely. And I think that's really important because I've got my views and my attitudes. Here's someone like Emma Goodall. She's got her attitudes and her expertise. Wen Lawson, Chloe Hayden, um, Shani Hancock. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the younger ones. Um, the little Wolf. Summer Farrelly. Oh, Summer Farrelly. We love Summer Farrelly. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, there's quite a lot of prominent autistic advocates. In the You're right, there are, yeah. And it's lovely. So, and also it means I don't have to do everything. I do still do quite a lot. My to-do list, I have a uh, an Excel spreadsheet that has all of my talks and podcasts and stuff in it. Last year I got up to 42, but two of them didn't happen, so 40. This year, given that it's only just halfway through the year, I'm up to 34. So, um, yes, it's, it's, it's a bit... I knew you did a lot, but far out, that's a lot. <laughs> Do you ever get sick of saying it over and over again or are they all a bit different? Well, the thing is, my passion, my special interest, one of my special interests been over the years, first of all, fungi, cats, Doctor Who, communism, Cold War, Criminality, drugs, art school, um, public service work, autism advocacy. So my passion has been autism advocacy for 10 years now. Um, Yeah, let's keep it. Yeah, you need to keep that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know it really worries me. What if I stop being passionate about it? People will be asking me to give talks and I'm like, nah, uh, no, I like it. I get paid for most of it as well, which is pretty Well, nice. that's good and as it should be. Well, you, you absolutely should be paid. Sorry I'm not paying you today. But... Oh, no, I don't normally ask payment for podcasts. 
Um, oh, you're sweet. Thank you. Maybe a conference you can pay me. But um, yeah, if no. I was earning something from it, then I'd be happy to pay you. But I'm yeah, not. That is the requirement, isn't it? In order to pay someone, <laughs> you need to be paid yourself. Yeah, exactly. Is- and I, I mean, I'm doing it for another reason. And I know you obviously are too. You know, we care and we want, like we said at the beginning, we just want to make the world a better place and leave the world with something positive when we go. And I just happen to feel passionate, very, very passionate about this too. So good, let's make it work. It only makes things better. And as you just said, you've seen that things have gotten better in that regard, which is a wonderful thing. Okay, on that note, my second last question for you is what are your plans for the future? How perfectly timed was that? Don't really have. Oh, no, one of them is it's a lot to do with advocacy. Buy a property. That's (laughs) high on my list at the moment. Um, We thought you'd done it but it didn't happen, so it will happen. Sadly, it turned out the place was full of water leaks and that would have stressed me out and made me unwell mentally, so... I just thought, oh, I don't have to buy that, so I'm not going to. But we will find somewhere nice that I can live in and it will be mine and I can get a cat and um, it will be lovely. So that's my personal plan and goal at the moment. But my, I guess my advocacy goes, I've got some new books that I'm working on, so I'll get those finished and see how they go. And... Um, yeah, you must tell me about all of them and I'll I'll um make sure that I list them as well and people can read them. Yeah, it sounds like they're very wide and varied, so there'll be something there for everyone. It's funny, people talk about a topic and I have to say, oh, I've got a book on that. And they talk, <laughs> oh, I've got a book on that as well. I've got what, what have I got? Autobiography, Employment for Teenagers, Mental Health Guide, two books on resilience for parents, women on the spectrum. Um, awesome autistic go-to guide for teenage or for tweens and teens. Yeah, that's awesome good. autistic tra- guide for trans teens. What the new one? Uh, self-advocacy handbook, and I'm sure there's others. That, oh, and the autistic trans guide to life, which is for transgender adults. So yeah, that's the eleven, and then I've got chapters in another. I think another twelve. So yeah, I've got a fair number of books. Oh, wonderful. So good. You're a busy, busy person. And is there anything at the, as we're coming to the end now, any mentors or other kind of resources that you like to help people to access apart from your own books, which we will make sure we list, but yeah, anyone else that you want to mention? Or oh, As I mentioned before, Neurodivergent Rebel does some really good work. There's the PDA person, Christy Forbes, um, her work's pretty good. Uh, Barb Cook, who's fantastic, and I've co-authored a couple of books with her. And um, she's doing some great work around employment particularly. Um, who else? Oh, so many. Wen Lawson, of course, can't go past Wen. Dr Emma Goodall, she's quite amazing and does some fantastic work and is a really lovely human being. Summer Farrelly with Chickens to Love um, and then Sam Rose. Actually, who are all my co-authors? Sam Rose, Tanya Masterman, uh, Wen. Uh, who else have I written books with? Um, you said Barb Cook. I was trying to Barb think Cook, of anyone yes, else. I, th- I think that's – I think I hope I haven't missed one. Um, but oh. yeah. 
well, we'll we'll say sorry to whoever you've missed now. (laughs) I'm sure they won't be offended. No. Um, Who else is doing good stuff? Uh, the I Can Network are doing good stuff. Oh, yes, I've interviewed Chris Varney. Sorry, uh, what was that one? Uh, Reframing Autism. Oh, yes, I've interviewed Mel, Mel Hayworth. She's fantastic. I've interviewed some of those that you've said, but I've got more to go. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, get some people on because it's good. Um, there's Shadia Hancock and Autism. Yeah, I've interviewed Shadia and I interviewed Shadia's mum recently too. Shadia's oh, mum's lovely. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a really good interview. Oh, and then there's uh, Paul McCarlin. Oh, does Autism Explained? Uh, he's got a conference on this year. I can't remember what it's called, but I'm in it. Oh. <laughs> of course, you are. <laughs> oh, I'll find out about that. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll list that one as well. Good people. There's the Experience Collectors in Brisbane. What are they called? The Experience Collectors. Experience Collectors. Haven't heard of them either. There's a few I've still yet to meet. I gave a talk to them last year. Oh, wow. Okay. Very good. Yeah, there's, uh, if, any, if you think of any afterwards as well, I can always put them in the, yeah. in the show notes or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah, but there's there's lots. Like you say, it's growing and, and it's been something I have ex- enjoyed experiencing in talking to and getting to know autistic people and neurodivergent people and people who are different to what I've known in my younger years and I love it and want to make sure that those people are given um, agency and a voice so that we parents can also improve, as you mentioned before, on the way that we see neurodivergence and understand it and try to help our kids so that they're not the square pegs getting bashed into the round hole so that the round hole is changing to become whatever shape they are (laughs) yeah so anyway that's what we're trying to do and I really appreciate you being on the podcast to um, talk to us about all your experiences and the way you see the world it's absolutely fascinating and yeah thank you Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed that. It's my bedtime. I have my meds. Yeah. Before. Oh, you need to go to bed. Well, let's let's press stop now on this interview and see you soon, Yen. It's been so great for you to be here. Thank Just you one moment me. and hang on there for me for a moment. Bye, everybody. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushell. And remember, just be nice to one another.